Hello? Okay, Gloria, if we're going to do this, will you promise that you'll call me out if I say something that sounds racist or privileged? Girl, I'm going to call you out, but here's the thing. You got to make me a promise, okay, that you won't be afraid to ask me questions, for real. Like, we really have to do this if we're going to do it. Okay. Welcome to Hard Candy and Fruit Snacks. I'm Gloria Harrison, a TV producer living in New York. And I'm Carrie Clifford, an actor and writer living in Los Angeles. We first met in elementary school outside Boston. When I was part of a program that bused kids from the inner city to school in the suburbs. We're going to talk about privilege and disadvantage. And about what it's like to move from one world to another without really feeling at home in either. In this podcast, we're having conversations about race. And the awkwardness that comes with learning about people from another culture. Gloria, all of this stuff that's been going on, Black Lives Matter, everything. I just had this urge to just sort of like rehash things with you because we've known each other forever. And I know there's stuff that has happened in our past that we haven't talked about. And so much racism and history and everything is coming out now, right? right? In 2020. It's crazy. When you sent me a text message, I was so excited to hear from you. And then I thought to myself, okay, hmm, what's this going to be about? What is this? And then when you finally reach out to me, I was excited because here we are in 2020. And to think that we're still going the way we are in terms of not you and I, but race relations in America. And it's a horrible time right now. And for you to reach out to me, honestly, I got a little emotional too. I was excited to talk about our friendship so excited to talk about our past. We've known each other since we were in elementary school. Yeah. What year? So I think we, did we connect in third grade? But I started in Mecco in the first grade and we graduated together. Right. To 12. Exactly. Yep. Um, and we're not going to reveal everything about our past. Right. But <laughs> when people were coming forward with these different stories and I was just like, we have an interesting story and you were put in an interesting situation. And I just feel like with hindsight, it's so much easier to reflect on, right? After you've gone through this. And I just think it would be such an interesting conversation. So basically, I grew up in Wayland, Massachusetts, which was like a white suburb of Boston. And you grew up- In Dorchester, Massachusetts, which was an inner city of Boston. So clearly uh, two different worlds. We went to school in Wayland, Massachusetts. Which I don't know the history, but I think it was like founded in like the 1700s or something. It's definitely like that old Massachusetts with a town center, with a white church in the center. I grew up on the north side of town, which was super rural. Like we actually lived on a dirt road and people had horses. We did not have horses, but people had horses. Um, I think Wayland at the time was one of the most affluent suburbs of Boston, sort of that Metro West area, Wayland, Weston, Wellesley. I remember that um, being that because I remember it was like one of the top uh, wealthiest high schools in the country back then yeah. when we were in high school. Yeah. So, and it was one of the best. One too. of the best. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of people that live there, a lot of doctors from like the Harvard hospitals, finance people. I don't exactly know what my dad did, but he was like a venture capitalist. Like I, I was just, I was like, oh, he's <laughs> He's in business, you know, but I don't really know what that is. And my mom was a teacher. And it was very idyllic. People had yards. The school system was good. Um, you know, it was, it lacked diversity, but it was <laughs> in many ways like a nice place to grow up. 
It sounds like, in my mind, what I imagine to be uh, the American dream, the white picket fence, Mm -hmm. the the big house. I also want to make you laugh. I remember the white church, but I also remember one liquor store in the entire town, which I always (laughs) thought was funny (laughs) because (laughs) a lot different from uh, Dorchester. (laughs) There was a a liquor store like right by our high school. And I remember when we could go off campus, we'd go there not to get liquor, but you'd go and get like corn nuts and Pringles or whatever. Well, I used to go there and try to get liquor in high school and they'd be like, honey, you're under 21. That's not going to (laughs) happen. Dorchester was part of Boston? Uh, There was Dorchester, Roxbury, Mattapan. Um, Those were the ones where I lived close to. And I would say they were about 15, 20 minutes away from each other. And in the inner city, like where we lived, my parents own a home and on the street, there were houses that were very close to each other. Like I could go out in my backyard and touch my fence and I would literally be touching the neighbor's fence. It was the kind of uh, neighborhood where if we needed to borrow sugar, we would go next door and ask them if we can borrow sugar. Um, it was it was a community. I love that. Everybody knew each other, and most of us went to the same church. Um, and it was a kind of neighborhood where if something was going on, you best believe the next door neighbor, some neighbor was looking out the window, and they were uh-huh. sure to tell the next door neighbor. You know that old thing called telephone? Right. <laughs> I feel like in the neighborhood, everyone was... Uh, striving for the American dream too, but striving in a way that they had to go through a lot of things to get there. My mom saw a need for childcare in our community and she actually started her own daycare. And my father was a truck driver. He traveled all over the country delivering packages. We would come together through a busing system, right? And you even sent me a picture from 1979. We were in the third grade together. (laughs) And so we would connect through this busing system and I want to talk about that. Yeah. Exp- so explain, like, because for me, I just assumed like everyone had a program like this, but it's only been like in recent years that I have realized, like, actually, it was kind of an anomaly and it's a very controversial thing. A lot of school systems had it. But do you want to just speak to what it was? It was the Metropolitan Council for Educational Opportunity. What a mouthful, right? Totally. Metco. <laughs> Metco. And, um, On NPR, Adi Cornish does a great job summarizing what the program was. Take a listen. When progressive white school districts in the suburbs started taking in black students from the city, in 1966, they paired with an unlikely ally, white affluent suburbanites. Seven white communities signed up to accept 220 black city kids into their schools, and Metco was born. Seven transportation companies were hired to pick up 220 Negro children in the Metco program. And what that meant was uh, the government said, we can no longer allow uh, segregation in our schools. We're going to actually give funding to take inner city children, specifically black children, and bus them to white suburbs in hopes of giving them a better education. Not everybody was happy about the MECO program, you know? And so when you and I talk, I want to revisit like what you were told. For me, my mom said to me, Gloria, before you were even born, I had heard of the MECO program and I had heard that they were trying to end segregation. So they were looking for young black children. You were in my stomach. I signed you up for this program. And it wasn't until about six, seven years later, I would find out that you were accepted. So I took you there in the first grade. And looking back, I'm saying, what was she thinking? 
right? She yeah. said, I did it for you because I wanted you to have a better opportunity at an education that had more opportunities than I think you would have in the inner city. Do you know like what kind of, so obviously there was an application uh, process. So the family had to have the initiative to want to apply, but also were, were people not accepted? Like, you know what I mean? Do you know anything about that? She said she was lucky when she found out that her child was accepted. And just so you know, I'm the youngest actually of five children. So my older siblings were a part of the busing system. When they were going, it was in the 60s, the late 60s, 68, 69. And they remember uh, having rocks being thrown at their school bus. They remember being called a nigger, okay? And they did not finish the MECO program. They decided that, mom, we can't do it. So my parents took them out. So here I am, the youngest of five children, would go the farthest and... They're like, we have one more shot. We're going to sign. I'm like, but why would you sign? I, I, at that time, I didn't understand it. But here I was put into a system because they thought it would be a better opportunity uh, for me. But I want to ask you, you being in, in Wayland, you're in a wealthy white suburb. What were you told about the MECO program? We were sort of told, and this is where it's like this us and them thing, right? That it's like the MECO program was set up to give these kids a great education. And it was like, they were so lucky to have this opportunity, right? That's how it was perceived to us. And it was that thing where like, you guys were coming to us, right? So it was, it was always like, from, you guys were like guests in our school, almost, right? And, and it, we were sort of told that like, how lucky you guys were to have this opportunity, which is so already warping the dynamic, right? That's one of the things I want to talk about, like growing up saying, why does this family have more than my family? Why? Right. Who made them more wealthy? Right. More connected? More educated? Because I have a, 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 an amazing mom and dad at home, and I'm looking at them struggle, and I'm like, why were the hands dealt this way? As a child, I would say, how can I get that? Why yeah. don't I have that? And I think our conversation as friends is understanding and acknowledging that it existed. That's the first step to trying to be able to understand the other side of somebody. If you can acknowledge, listen, and I said this to you, I said, acknowledge that at the beginning of this line, I'm going to call it a race for a second. The line was not even. Not your fault, not my fault, but the hard reality is we never started off on an even playing field. We right. didn't, you know, right. and that, that doesn't just go for you and I, it just goes for the history of black Americans in this country. And I'm sure people can speak for other people, but you know, I, I have a living father and mom, my father's in his eighties and the stories he tells me break my heart. I'm like, he's from South Carolina where mm -hmm. there was no integration, right? None to speak of. And he comes to Boston. He, I bet you, he said to my mom, why are you signing her up for that? I, you know, I always try to, you know, I'm going to ask him again. I think he was probably like, yeah, we don't need to do that. Right. We, 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 we know what that feels like. We've been through that. And my mom was probably like, no, 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 no. This is going to be better for her. This is going to be better for her. When I think about the MECO program, all in all, I think it did more good for most students, right, than bad. However, although it was set up with good intentions, I don't think as I look back as an adult, there was enough prep work. And what do I mean by that? You brought inner city children, myself, and 30 to 40 other kids. 
Remember, we're young, seven, eight, nine years old. You put us on the bus. It takes us an hour, an hour and a half just to get to school. And mind you, when we're getting on the bus, we don't even know the other kids that are from the inner city because they're all from different parts of the inner city. We're put on this bus. We're taking an hour and a half uh, bus ride commute to get to school, to get off the bus, only to feel like you said, as if we are not in a place that we can call our own, that we're in a place that we are just um, visitors, that we're temporary. And, and imagine that as a child, like you're already learning how to make friends. You're learning your ABCs. You're learning your math. You're trying to fit in. And then you add race. It does matter. And it mm -hmm. matters at that age. I feel like the MECO program, while it had good intentions, it could have been better had there been a, a more of a stronger support system. And I mean that for the administration. I mean that for white parents who are in the suburbs who just told their kids, this is an opportunity for them. We're doing them a favor, but they didn't, they didn't get to know what MECO was. And then let's go to parents like mine that were working two jobs, that were sending their children out, that couldn't come to any after-school activities, that couldn't participate. All they thought was, we're giving our kids, because that's what we were told, a better opportunity. This is so crazy, but like, I remember, I literally thought that Metco meant black. And I remember like going into Boston and like visiting my dad at work or something and then like retelling a story. And I was just like, yeah. And then I saw some Metco kids. <laughs> I didn't see Metco kids. I saw black kids, you know, right, but, but you that's <laughs> like, but that's how that's, that's what Metco was. Like, it was just the black kids that were coming out to our white suburb, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I was trying to think like, do you even know, like when we graduated high school, I think there's 165 kids in our class. Do you have any memory of how many Metco kids were in our class? Because not a lot. I tried to count them and I don't want to say their names, but I, I came up, I think with like seven, maybe. I was going to say seven. between five to 10. Yep, yeah. Five to 10. Yep. That graduated um, in our class. And you know, <gasps> which is crazy when you think about that, because I, I think our graduating class was 165 or it was around then. So that there was between five and 10 African-American students. I mean, that's insane. Exactly. And then that's remember, not diverse. <laughs> some of them came in the middle school or high school. Right. So some of them I got to know and some of them were not open. They came through the MECO program and they used to say to me, uh, we're not mixing and mingling. We're not sitting over there with the white kids. We're just going to sit at the MECO table because we called it the MECO table. And what do we mean by mm -hmm. MECO? It was where all the black kids sat, mm -hmm. most of them. Right. You know, and they right. would say to me, Gloria, why do you sit with the white kids? And I'm like, why sit with everybody? I sit wherever right. I feel like sitting. Some days I'm with, you know, the drama club, you know, whatever. Sometimes I'm with the MECO program. I feel like so those that graduated with us, some of them went on to college. Most of them went to college and they just moved on and never looked back. Unlike right. you and I, we were always curious, right, about each other. Right. And we yeah. remained friends. And and I hold that dear to my heart because we look back and what I want to get across, and I, I hope people understand, is like the way you were raised and where you live, you were born into that, right? right. It's not your fault. Where I come from, where I live, I was born into that. It's yep. not my fault. But right. what are we doing in 2020 that I think is interesting is we always, even from when we were children, try to understand each other and try to be um, respectful of one another and try to understand each other's point of view. And right. imagine if more people did what we try to do. I think we totally. would be living in a better place. And it is that thing. It's like, 
I don't know, there's people who probably don't interact with people of a different race. That's where you start these prejudices or you have these ideas that just aren't true because you don't even know because you've never talked to a gay person or an Asian person or a black person or whatever, right? Right. You You kind of felt like you were a guest in both places because when you were in Wayland, it was the suburb that that was not where you lived. That was where you went to school. And then when you were home, that was where you lived, but that was not where you went to school. So you were kind of like an outsider in both communities. So imagine that. So during the week, Monday through Friday, I'm getting home at like four or five o'clock. You think in the wintertime, it's dark. So I don't see anybody in my neighborhood. So on the weekends, I may see them. Maybe on a Saturday, I'll come out and they're like, who is that? I'm like, I live, I live over there. And they didn't see me or they would see me and say, why do you talk like that? Why do I talk like what? How come you don't play with us more? I'm like, okay, because I play soccer after school. I play basketball. I did theater. So I didn't get a chance to see some of the kids in my neighborhood. And as I look back, I said, I struggled with two different worlds. Where do I fit in? Okay, I'm out there. I'm going to the school. They like me sometimes. Some of them like me more than others. I'm good enough, but I'm not that good enough. You know what I mean? So I don't fit in there. Then I come home and they're like, why don't you hang out with us more? Why do you, and I I couldn't understand, why do you talk like what? I didn't understand. And I think that they couldn't identify with me, uh, some of my um, peers in my neighborhood, because they didn't see me. And they thought that I thought I couldn't connect with them or that I felt like I was better. And honestly, that's a lonely place to be. That's a lonely place to be because, like I said, it's two different worlds. I don't fit in in Wayland. I don't have the money. I don't get the grades. I'm not in the popular crowd. And guess what? I got a permanent, you know, tan that God blessed me with (laughs) that I came to appreciate. All Right. right. And then I go to the inner city where I live and I'm not connecting there either. I think everything, honestly, I appreciate it because it made me stronger. You know, as I yeah, but it is just like a, you know, I mean, even now it's like when I go quote unquote home, I, you know, I went to the school system in the town that I grew up the whole time. Like for you to go home, you're not going to see people that you went to school with. Oh, right. Exactly. You know, it's like a different, it's just, it's just different. I think an attempt to make you guys, and I hate that I'm saying you guys, but I don't know how else to say it because I feel like there was a divide. No, but does that seem like inappropriate for me to say you guys? But it was you guys. It was you guys and us. And that that was part of the problem, right? That's part of the problem. And that's uh, where that made the divide. That's why there was a divide in the cafeteria. That's why there was a divide in subject areas. It it was I think it was set up to be a good idea, this busing system. But I also sometimes feel like some of us were set up for failure. We weren't given the tools to go as far as we could have. Carrie, after all the years of being in Wayland, what do you think of the MECO program? I think it's taken me until my adult life to actually realize that there was a benefit, that I've now realized that there were a lot of my white friends went to all white school systems and they never had any integration, even though we might not have done a great job at it. I at least had the experience of going to school with people that were different from me. And like, I know people that didn't even have Jewish families in their town, you know, and I'm in no way saying that Wayland was this huge, diverse melting pot, but we did, we we had a lot of Jewish families. We had the MECO program. So I was exposed to people that had different lifestyles, different cultures than me. 
I still think that I benefited from just having exposure of meeting people that had different backgrounds. Okay, so now looking back on the busing system, and your kids now, they go to school in the town that you live in, right? But would you ever do that for them? Would you have them bus to another school? The goal I've always heard in my family was to move the next generation forward. And I'm proud to tell you that because of the MECO program, because of my mom's steadfast ability to keep focus and push me forward, my next generation, my children are accomplishing the goal. So what that means is for me, they don't need an integration system. But if I needed a busing system that would allow them to have a better opportunity, I would do it all over again. I understand what my mother did. I'm so grateful that she did it. I think the MECO program works. And I think busing is necessary. Is it hard? Hell yeah. You've been listening to Hard Candy and Fruit Snacks with my mom, Gloria. And my mom, Carrie. This episode was produced by Frank Valida, Carrie Clifford, Gloria Harrison, and an ACL joint production. With the music by Alex Skolnick Trio. Check them out at alexskolnick.com. Tune in next time to hear more from our moms. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.